Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Dr. Elise Cortez is a special guest on today's show. She's a management consultant, radio show host, and organizational logotherapist. But before we get a chance to speak with Elise, it's a Leadership Hacker News. We've recently had International Friendship Day. So in the show today, we explore the notion around should leaders be friends with their co-workers and teammates? So can you be properly friends with somebody you work with? Well, some will say yes, and others will say no. Yet there's plenty of research to suggest that generally speaking, we highly value workplace friendships and having these friendships positively impacts on the work that we do and our approach to our jobs. A study of thousands of employees by UK-based team building company Wild Goose found that more than half, in fact 57% of workers said that having a work best friend made their work more enjoyable, while 22% argue it makes them as or more productive. What's more, it seems that many workers who don't have strong relationships in the workplace may be struggling with things like loneliness, since 15% of those who were surveyed don't have a work best friend, but would ideally like one. All of us appreciate having good friends in our lives, says Nick Marks, happiness expert, statistician, and CEO of the Friday Pulse. Nick's also a good friend and was the guest on show 18, Hacking Happiness. Nick says, it's good to have people who care about us and who care for us. Why should work be any different, especially when we consider how rational the world of work is? Nick explains, we have a thick core relationship within our team, as well as a thinner, more peripheral relationship with other colleagues and customers and suppliers. The quality of these relationships is not only affects our own experience at work, but work is indisputably better when we get along with people. It's also business critical. But workplace friendships remain a controversial topic for a number of reasons, not least because they're associated with the formation of cliques, and friendships can also be potentially undermining the effectiveness of teams. Some of the worst performing teams I know are great friends, but they can't get anything done, said Pam Hilton, a collaboration expert and author of Supercharged Teams, 30 Tools of Great Teamwork. Collective intelligence research tells us that teams who avoid constructive conflict in favour of consensus make fewer successful decisions because they don't challenge each other enough. And Hamilton believes that while it's easy to assume that friendship is the first step towards teamship, it's really the other way around. We need to come to work to achieve something, whether it's to launch a new product or to serve our customers. And putting friendship before teamship means that we might launch an inferior product because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or to forget to serve our customers because we're too busy having a good time. So regardless of whether leaders promote or frown upon workplace friendships, they'll continue to exist. Humans are hardwired to form close connections with others, and we're likely to form especially strong bonds with those that we have something in common with. Inevitably, 
we are likely to find more of those people at work. So the leadership lesson here is awareness. If we're aware of friendships that are productive and helping us as a business move forward, we should encourage and promote it. But where we recognize their cliques and holding back performance productivity, we should challenge it. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. We're looking forward to hearing from you, interesting stories, and any insights that you might have. So please get in touch. Our special guest on today's show is Dr. Elise Cortez. She is a Chief Ignition Officer at Gusto Now, a management consultant who ignites the passion and purpose in her clients. She's the author of the book, Purpose Ignited, and the host of her weekly radio show, Working on Purpose. Elise, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's so great to be on your show. It's great to have you on our show too. And we've had the opportunity to have met a few times over the last year or so, you know, really looking forward to getting into the whole principle of purpose and passion. But before we do that, maybe just for the folks that are listening for the first time and haven't met you, it'd be great to give us a little bit of a backstory as to your early life and passions. Mm. Well, I grew up in a small town in, in Oregon. And so I literally, it was a great place to grow up, Steve, but honestly, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And in my, in my late teens, I found myself in Portland and then finally found my way into college at about age 24 after bobbling around for a bit and made myself a promise when I got into college, Steve. And that was I need to learn French and play the piano. So I did those things going through my first two years of college. And then I found myself with my boyfriend. Um, and when I was 26 years old, he got moved to uh, Madrid, Spain for his company. And I came with him. I was just a college student. I didn't have a career. And so now here I am, mind you, small town girl from Oregon. I've landed in Madrid, Spain. I could speak French and I learned some Spanish in the restaurant I worked at when I was waiting tables to get through college so I could speak the, the, the Spanish. And so I'm, I'm in Madrid and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this place is amazing. Everybody is kissing. <laughs> There's amazing communication. So I went all over Western Europe on my French and my, my Spanish for about six months, and then they moved us to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where I then learned Portuguese and went all over South America for two years. And so, Steve, I just couldn't get that out of my system, right? Right. Once that had been imprinted for like almost three years, there was no going back. So that's where the, the passion for language and travel started. And you still have that passion for language and travel now. Absolutely. I do. In fact, I still use Spanish. I actually, I do Spanish um, programs and I do some Portuguese programs. And yes, I keep traveling. Absolutely. What do you think it is that creates that Elise in you? Where does that come from? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I remember distinctly um, when my, when I was growing up in high school, my parents had a big um, restaurant, breakfast, lunch, and dinner place. And I worked there when I was in, in high school and waited tables. I was the oldest of four siblings. And my parents expected, I would, being the oldest, that I would take over the restaurant. But what they didn't know, Steve, was that all those years that I was waiting tables in this small little town with 4,800 people in it was that people from really exotic places like Portland, Oregon, <laughs> would pass through and I would learn from them and hear about these outside world experiences. And I just was drawn to what what's out there. What, what, what could there be? You've got a really curious mindset as well, haven't you, which I suspect is why you've ended up doing what you doing now tell us a little bit about how that epiphany came about yeah i do have a curious mindset I'm, I'm learning that more and more as i go through life you know i have to say uh, one of the ways that we can learn one of, one of the paths to purpose i should say steve is is paying attention to and learning from what's ailed us in life and so when i you would think that that amazing experiences that i that i had living in spain and brazil were 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 incredibly phenomenally positive and they were 
But at the same time, here I was, 26 years old, living in Brazil. I had a maid, a chauffeur, and a gardener. I had I had it by I had the world by the tail, you would think. But there was just one problem. And that problem was that I was miserable in many ways because what I really wanted to do was to matter. I wanted to make a difference in the world somehow. And all I was doing was consuming a beautiful life. And what we know about meaning and purpose is what happens is you start when you're when you're serving other people, that's when you're most fulfilled. So I actually had a, a meaning crisis back in my, you know, my, my mid 20s. And then later on in my early 30s, when I came back to the States, it manifested into what I would call an, a sort of an early midlife crisis. And so that, my friend, is when I found my way into getting a PhD. I didn't have an affair, buy a sports car. No, my answer to an, a midlife crisis was to get my PhD. So that divining rod that I like to say was working its magic. And then just literally over time, I just kept paying attention to trying to literally, you know, feel my way to what that divining rod was trying to tell me to do. And that's when I found my way into the human capital industry. Some 20 years ago, I began studying meaning and work and identity for my research and PhD, consulted along engagement, performance, uh, leadership, et cetera. And then I have to say, um, I found myself just this incredible internal force of, you know, replicate that research, at least make it bigger, make it deeper. And I did that in 2014 and I got published by going to a business conference there. And of course you, you go to, I was in India. So I'm three weeks in India and I had that experience, right? The experience people talk about going to India, totally stepped into my soul and really realized this is where I need to be. I need to be doing this meaning and purpose stuff really more on a, on a, on a full-time basis. And lo and behold, Steve, right around in there is when Voice America called me and said, hey, do you want to host your own radio show? <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, this is all connected, right? So that's where Working on Purpose Radio was was born. And, and that's really how it all started for me, Steve, that just it was this ongoing, unfolding, unveiling of like literally my soul emerging from myself, I would say. And, you know, the one thing I notice about you, Elise, is I still don't think you found mm. the end game for you. I know from our conversations that we've had together that, you know, every day is a school day for you and you're continually learning and continually evolving your thinking and continually looking for new ways to ignite not only others' purpose, but also finding new elements of purpose for you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for seeing that. I agree with you. And it's so amazing to be seen like that, Steve. Thank you for that beautiful gift. Yeah, every day is a learning day for me and I can't wait to see what's around the corner. I have no idea what I'm doing next in terms of how I use this meaning and purpose work in my life and for my clients, but I love it. Yeah. And uh, we'll come back to mindset, which I think determines whether you see things as really exciting and alluring versus scary and, and doubtful. We'll come back to that in a moment because I want to kind of get into the premise of when you started to do your studies, you bumped into the notion of logotherapy and that really was quite an inspirational guide for you, wasn't it, in terms of how you evolved and developed your own thinking? Yeah, you know, I really ran into it when I started my PhD studies in my early 30s. And of course, you know, here I was doing a PhD in human development. So I was studying lifespan human development psychology. Of course, I ran into Viktor Frankl's work. He's written like 22 books or something. But logotherapy became really sort of a way of life, if you will, for me. And what I, what I was drawn to is that it's really a therapeutic approach that helps people find meaning in life. And the whole premise is that our primary motivational force in life is to find meaning. And so that just made a lot of sense to me. And of course, they're right, what did I do? I went off and studied meaning and work and identity. 
But today, why do I stand? Why is that one of my two main anchors? It's because that logotherapy is really an optimistic approach that teaches that there are no negative or traumatic aspects of life that by the stand we take to them, which is also about mindset, they can't be transmuted into positive achievements. And I find that so empowering. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Why wouldn't I want to stand in that space? Yeah. So thinking about its link then to mindset. So you call it your governing star. So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I love that question. Thank you for that. And so when we think about mindset, it's really our internal operating system, right? It orients where we put our attention and how we interpret the world. And really, frankly, it dictates our success and failure. If we think we can, we can. If we think we can't, we can't. It's just so... It's so deciding, right? It's so definitive. So that's why I call it your your governing star. That's quite neat, isn't it? And I suspect that's the reason why when you frame it as it's exciting, I'm really excited about what's coming around the corner, how others perhaps with a different mindset could feel in fear of that. No doubt about that. Absolutely right. And and thank you for that. That is such a a really important point to make for our listeners because – Right. Um, You know, how we orient ourselves to the world. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast this morning when I was getting ready. Um, When we say things like, well, I have a terrible memory. Guess what? You are you're going to forget things. Yeah. If you say things like I remember people's names like nobody's business. Guess what you do? It's just so definitive. So when you think, you know, what what's this great, beautiful life that I'm going to go live today versus, oh, what am I dragging myself through today? You can see the difference in the energy right there. And people often say to me, you know, Steve, this is a little bit kind of pink and fluffy, but actually it's based in science. It's neuroplasticity. It's creating new layers of memory that are either going to help us or hold us back. And I wonder what your experience of that was with perhaps your clients. Oh, gosh, no question about it. You know, one of the greatest things that I, speaking neuroplasticity, one of the greatest things that, that I get to do in my work, and I think we talked about this when you were on my show, is I have never replicated the this, this, this positive feeling of witnessing someone literally their their molecules change in front of my very eyes as they transform themselves. Right? right. There is I don't know of a better feeling than that. And and the work that you and I get to do allows us to do that. So we literally are witnessing that neuroplasticity in in the works as we watch them grow. So yeah, it's and, and teaching them a way, and that's why I like logotherapy so much, Steve, is because logotherapy teaches them a, a, a way to be able to achieve them for this for themselves every day of their lives, and therefore I'm empowering them. They don't need me after that we work together. If I do my job right, I've empowered them. Yeah, and empowerment creates habits and positive rituals, and eventually it becomes the way we do things, right? Yeah, yeah, and then it's it's got infinity to it, right, and and magnitude to it. Who knows where that goes? Yeah, exactly. So in your book, one of the things that I read that I really loved and I want us to explore and share with our listeners is the fact that you encourage people to be moment hunters. So if I'm listening into this today, how do I become a moment hunter? Ah, that's such a delicious question. And thank you again for such a lovely read of my book. So you're the one who read my book. It's so good to know. (laughs) (laughs) No, so where I got the whole moment hunter idea, Steve, was I, um, you know, as you know, I've been hosting my my radio show, Working on Purpose, for six years. And generally speaking, the last two or three years of that has really been interviewing um, subject matter experts and authors and business leaders. And so I happened to come across a book um, called Ichigo Ichie, and it's by two authors named Hector Garcia and Fresk Mirales. And essentially what they are talking about is this Japanese concept, Ichigo Ichie, which means something like 
what we are experiencing right now will never happen again. And so therefore, we have to value each moment like a beautiful treasure. And that takes being present, mindful, and grateful for the moments and cherishing them as part of our one precious life. And so when you when you realize that you literally are, you can be, at least if you allow yourself, a child skipping through life, really enjoying and savoring the moment, what a difference that is, again, than dragging yourself through a day, right? So if I teach you to become a moment hunter and I, and I empower you and you learn a lifelong habit of doing that, that is a, a night and day difference to, to the way that most people tend to go about living. And that's where I want to be. I want to be a moment hunter. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those things that's academically very easy to say, but it's quite difficult to practice and get into a habit of doing so. So where would I start with that? Well, it's first it's mindset. And, I, and I, I will tell you the first thing. This is a great story, actually. The very first thing you can do is literally, I kid you not, just at the end of your day, just write down, maybe in a journal, three things you're grateful for. And what that starts to do is it starts having you look for what's good and right in your life. And the story that I want to tell is um, one of my clients actually started doing this, started reading my book, and he got to that bit just that we're talking about here of, of gratitude and, and writing it down. And he said, I got to the end of my day and I realized I couldn't find three things to say that I was grateful for. This is a very successful man, runs an engineering practice. And he said, that's when I realized I need to fire one of my clients. <laughs> they are just making me miserable. <laughs> and good. and he, right. And so he said, as soon as I got present to that reality, and I then realized what I needed to do, I began to see that there were things to be grateful for. And then I could actually enjoy more moments. But it took him getting present to being miserable with this one particular client and then firing them, literally, and what a difference in a lift he got. So again, if you start with what you're grateful for, you'll start to be able to step in the place where you can experience being a moment hunter and more of that Ichigo Ichie. And in your experience, the more you do that, does that present itself to be more natural in the future? Absolutely. It's a habit, like every, like so many yeah. things in life, right? It, it's, it's, it becomes a habit, a way of being, right? And I know, I, I, I bet you have gone through this just like any, any one of us have if we really think about it. Moments in time where we are more high on life, right, than, than other times when we're a bit more low. But there is a way to cultivate that high. And it, it's, 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 it's centered on mindfulness. It's centered on where do you, that's why mindset is so important, right? Right. And you know that in your work that you do, right? And so we, if we're in charge of our mindset, we don't let it govern us. We have a much better chance of being able to be an ongoing moment hunter versus someone who's literally either auditing life or worse yet, walking through life debt. Yeah, definitely so. And much of your work is focused on igniting purpose in others now. And you call out that relationships are a massive part of that. Just tell us about your experience and also maybe we can get into some of the techniques that you call out in your book. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in my book, I talk about uh, this notion of um, in terms of well-being informed by what Dr. Martin Seligman refers to as the PERMA model, which, of course, is an acronym. And the R is for relationships. Um, so what we know about relationships is we as human beings, we really we really are, you know, created as a social being. I don't care how introverted you might be or extroverted you might be. We still really do need meaningful relationships in our life to be to be mentally well and healthy. And so what we find is that it's the lack of meaningful connection with other people that often contributes to mental and physical demise um, and where we get into depression and isolation, etc. So being finding a way to stoke relationships in a way the ones that are important to you not not everywhere all the time but the ones that you choose 
to so that they are healthy and and mature and 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 reciprocal is really really important. And let's take it one step further, right? So when we when we're working from the place of purpose, the reason that purpose works so well is that it requires us to be serving other people. So therefore, it's got a it's got a self transcendent quality to it. And the moment we step out of being absorbed in our own life and our world, and we focus on serving and helping others, we're already in a better place. We're already in a much more healthy place. Right. So that's one reason why relation two reasons why relationships are so important. And you've got a technique called Lifeline that you call out in your book. Tell us how you would use it. Yeah. So Lifeline refers absolutely to those those meaningful connections that you have in your life, whoever they might be. Uh, maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your partner. You know. Maybe it's maybe it's a child. But the lifeline is really about being being very again mindful and present to that relationship. What are you doing to nurture that that relationship? What are you doing to really go looking for and see that other person? So there's and I know that you know this too because of the work that you do developing leaders, right, Steve? Right. So to me, what's a great leader? It's the same sort of technique that you would use in, in the lifeline approach, and that is. A great leader goes looking for what's great and fantastic about the person on their team. And then they look to see how can I lead them to a greater sense of themselves? How can I bring them to see and realize and go after what I know is even a greater aspect of who they could become? So to me, a lifeline is you're practicing that sort of set of behaviors in those close relationships in your life. Yeah. The one thing that struck me in reading that as well was that we all have choices about our relationships but we often don't bring that to our conscience enough and that helps us do that right absolutely exactly right and again that's why you know we it's so important to to have silence in our life too because we can then get anchored right back into our we're the ones in charge here not the rest of the world (laughs) so as fast as the world moves today right if we can come back to hold on just a second i always have one thing under my domain and that is my mindset yeah Definitely. And it starts there, doesn't it? It literally starts there. Literally, yes. And ends there, I would say. Yeah, definitely so. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, true passion, you've called out in your radio show and the work that you do, and it's in your book. You call it out as a being a real contributor to the world. Where have you maybe seen that play out the most or maybe some experiences where you really see that work? Uh, this is just where it gets really yummy. How much time do we get to talk about this, Steve? This is so awesome, right? <laughs> um, okay, so I want to distinguish two things. So passion is absolutely a, a, a mechanism to be able to contribute to the world meaningfully. So what I say about passion, and this is absolutely explicated in the book, is um, passion is really one of our three sources of meaning through energy and that's i do this for my logotherapy sort of work so what what passion really is it, it's the creative value of what we give of ourselves to the world it's something only we can uniquely give through our being right and so the more we give of ourselves of our passions the more energy we have right and everybody understands the importance of energy right so when we give our when we show up and we really channel our passions what happens there is that can that can then lead us to our purpose. Not always, but it can. It's one action, one path to our purpose. And when we serve from our purpose, of course, now that's where the real magic happens. And this is where it gets really interesting from from my my perspective, Steve. So, so purpose acts as a unique filter through which each of us sees the world. And then when we look through that lens, we see possibilities, or we do something that no one else would have seen or done. And that is the source of innovation impact that we all aspire for. So, you know, that notion of people confuse passion and purpose, they're not the same thing, right? Passion is really a, 
a, a way of being in the world. It's really sort of anchored in meaning and the expression of what it is that you find meaningful of yourself. And purpose, of course, is your North Star why, which orients all of your activities and why you're doing something and the difference that you hope to, to leave in the world. So that's how I like to see those two together. It's like mm. it's profoundly important to be able yeah. to go after passion and purpose. And they're not mutually exclusive, are they? No, not at all. And people often get them confused. What causes that? I think that's a great question. You know, one is there that we, we you can't go through a day today, I don't think, Steve, without encountering at least the words meaning and purpose. And so people confuse those two words as well. And so I, I think it's become the reason people confuse them is because it's because that word passion, purpose, and even meaning has become so overly utilized and therefore it diminishes its utility. And it just becomes part of the parlance, almost like saying things like, yeah, mm, and uh-huh, yeah, right? Indeed. It dilutes it. Yeah, I can see that. And unconsciously, then by just merely saying I have purpose doesn't actually mean you have purpose. It needs to be backed up by lots of other evidence and actions. Oh, boy, now you're getting at one of my major pet peeves, Steve. Mm. So when people say things like, you know, I... <laughs> When I, if I if I see another sign that says muffin on purpose, tires on purpose, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ballistic, right? So so people say things like, well, you know, I do this on purpose, or I'm this, or uh, such and such is my purpose. Well, just because you declare something which becomes like a goal for you does not make it purpose. The only thing that makes something purpose is that one, it literally is that which is called from within you, and the service through which it, that you were channeling for makes a difference to the world and is in service of other people. Very often when people say things like, well, such and such is my purpose, engineering is my business or my purpose, or um, whatever, um, developing people even is my purpose. If you're just declaring it as something that you do or a goal, it's not your purpose. It's not the same thing at all. Totally agree with that. Totally. Right. So one of the things that struck me, and I've never come across this notion before of conscious capitalism, but underpinning that, is all of those things around passion and purpose. But I wondered if you could just share with the listeners what your view of conscious capitalism is and how we might want to use them in our roles as leaders. Mm. Another yummy topic for me. I actually devoted uh, the last chapter of my book, as you probably know because you read it, to the idea of conscious capitalism. Yeah. That's chapter nine. And I have recently joined the, the board um, of conscious capitalism here in Dallas as well. So this is, it's just, it to me, it, it, it makes so much sense. So let me share, there's four tenets actually of, of conscious capitalism that will help our listeners really understand why, how it works and maybe why they might want to be involved. So um, the first tenet is just higher purpose. And so this really gets to knowing your company's why and doing business beyond profit. If you're just in business to make money, that's one, it's going to get empty pretty fast. And two, you're not going to distinguish yourself in the marketplace among others that have elevated their gaze above just profit. So higher purpose is the first tenet. The second tenet is stakeholder orientation. And what that is, Steve, is that's really a recognition that a business has an interdependence on the ecosystem in which it operates. And so it's important that a business is focused on serving its employees, its customers, its suppliers, investors, the community, and the planet. Those are all part of the ecosystem in which it operates. And too often what happens is we're focused on investors at, at the expense of everything else. And that's where, where the, the train falls off the tracks. So the third tenet is conscious leadership. And so this is the notion really that, you know, that humans, that, that well, that there is this, it's a 
a human social organization, right? And so it's guided by leaders who understand that they need to inspire others to travel along the same path of consciousness and purpose with them, to raise them along the way, like I've been saying. And then the fourth tenet is conscious culture, right? So that's the ethos, the values, the principles, the practicals that underlie that social fabric of the business and connects the stakeholders to each other united in their purpose and and their processes and of course their people. So those are the four tenets. And if you listen to those, I can't imagine that you go, Ick, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Why is there, what about any of that would make you say that you don't want to play with that? I don't understand. So to me, it's such a natural, obvious path that unites the best of what we've been doing together as humanity to bring us forward. So I think for me, it's a no brainer. And It's important that listeners also know that conscious capitalism is only one of like 20 different organizations that are stewarding a similar mindset like this in business. So this is becoming much more ubiquitous. And it's okay to make money and be a capitalist underpinning all of the service to other people if it's purposeful, right? Absolutely. In fact, you know, that's the thing about it is uh, what I what I appreciate about conscious capitalism is it celebrates capitalism as the best system we found so far in the world um, and frankly extends and expands it so that it actually serves even more and tries to lift more boats yeah so yes absolutely profit is fantastic there's almost a mystique around the word capitalism because it has a different connotation in people's minds but actually as you've described it with those principles it becomes a really honorable and emotive thing to be thinking about as a leader, right? Oh, I like the way you said that, Steve. Yeah. I mean, like, so to me, what that is, is why would you get out of bed in the morning and go, you know, I think I just want to, I just kind of want to fly under the radar and just do the minimum that it takes to get by. Why would you do that when you could lift your gaze just a little and say, hmm, who could I help today? Who else could I help today? What else could I do to make the world slightly better today? Yeah. And suppose if there were people listening in today who maybe don't naturally have that passion or still haven't yet found their purpose, maybe having a mindset that says, you know, it's too late for me to change. What would you say to ignite their passion today? Oh, well, you're not going to like the first thing that I would probably (laughs) say to them. But let me say it anyway. So if somebody said to me, you know what, it's too late for me to change. I don't, I I can't, it's too, I'm not, I don't, I can't find my passion. What I would say to them, Steve, is get your shovel. Let's go ahead. You and I both start digging your grave (laughs) because you're practicing death right now. That's what I would say. So no, it's never too late to work on passion. I don't care if you're in your, in your nineties or a hundred, you know, I will tell you, Steve, definitively, my, both of my parents died 28 days apart in January of 2019. And I'm firmly and all the more affirmed in my logotherapy work. My mother was 73 years old. She, yes, she had suffered a long time from COPD and she was tired of the suffering. She was ready to leave. But I am absolutely 185% convinced that if she had done something than sit and watch the TV all day. She got out and even even volunteered one hour a week of her beautiful mind and given to, to the community, gave her humor, which is part of her passion. She would still be with us today. That's mm. how important passion and meaning are today. They actually literally can save your life, do save your life. Yeah, I agree. And it, again, comes back down to mindset because if you think you can't or you think you can, you're probably right. You are right, yeah. So the next part of the show we get to do is spin around a little and I'm going to now tap into 
your awesome leadership brain. And the first thing I'm going to do is try and distill your experiences and ideas into your top three. So if you had to do that, what would they be? My top three are, uh, just coming off the last question that you asked, is the first is, first and foremost, find and plug into your passion. And, and the reason why is that it's just as I've just as I've shared, when you live and work from it, you're irresistible. You're magnetic. People want to follow people on fire in their own life. Right. So that's the first thing. Find and plug in your passion. The second thing, which I've already alluded to, is become an inspirational leader. And the way you do that is first you're on fire for your own life. And then you go looking for what's amazing and different about each team member that you have. And you help them lead them into their greater self. That's that's how you become an inspirational leader. And then third, um, go looking for and articulate to each of your team members how their work threads up into the company's overall purpose. So it's really important. What this does is it helps that individual person recognize just how important the work that they are doing is. And therefore, it gives them meaning. And so when we feel like we're connected to something bigger than ourselves, it's incredibly motivating. So go help them understand the work, how the work they're doing connects to the company's larger whole and purpose. I love that. And also connecting those dots will create that higher purpose, which will lead to conscious. Yes. Ta-da! If we do it right. Ta-da! Yes. <laughs> exactly. So the next part of the show, we call it hack to attack. So this is typically where something in your life or work hasn't worked out, could have been catastrophic or you've screwed up but as a result of the experience you've learned from it and it is now a positive in your life or work so what would your hack to attack be Elise? Well I'm not recommending this for everyone or anyone for that matter but this really worked well for me and it's this little thing called divorce. (laughs) Yeah little thing right? (laughs) Um, Right yeah it was not my idea to get a divorce I'd been together with my ex-husband for 18 years but it was a very good idea as it turns out and what it did was it forced me out of a certain apathy that I had fallen into in life. And um, it forced me to, to, to catalyze into a higher being and to grow and to learn from the pain and, you know, starting off in a different place in life. And I needed that. I needed, in fact, I will tell you that in my view, we all need this agitation catalyst in our life to grow and change. And I'm not saying it needs to be divorce, but usually it needs to be something pretty hard. A disruptor. And so a disruptor. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so that was a huge disruptor for me. And what it did, Steve, was it gave me this fantastic clearing that I could pursue whatever I saw in front of my, in front of my, my path that I wanted for myself. There were no more excuses for myself. That was one of the best hack to attacks for me in my life to date so far. Yeah. Do you think you would have found your purpose had that not happened? I already had found my purpose, but I, I here's the here's the amazing thing. I was not living it, Steve. Mm. And you know what? I hated myself for it. I hated myself for it. Interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was almost it was always there, but you were probably suppressing a lot of it. Yeah. It, it, well, and I, the worst thing is, is that when you're aware of it and you're not doing something about it, I will tell you that it's hell on earth. It really is. I can see that. The last part of the show, we give you the opportunity to go back and meet Elise and do some time travel. And you get to bump into her at 21 and give her some of your words of wisdom. What would your advice to her be? Oh, gosh. You know, I would tell her to listen to the wisdom emanating from within. So, Steve, when I was about 21 years old, I did know what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I, I was one of those people that felt like, to your point, I'd always been very curious. I'd done a lot of reading. I found all of the self-help literature and Scott Peck's The Road, Less Traveled. And, you know, I was reading all those kinds of books. And I came running to my mother one day and I said, Mom, I know exactly what I want to do when I grow up. 
And, and I said, I want to, I want to lead success seminars. And she bust out laughing. She said, you can't do that. You're not successful. And then of course the little, the little dream in me shriveled up and died. Yeah. Well, what am I doing today? Essentially is I'm helping people to really discover um, that which ignites them and helping them steward their, their field of, of human growth and transformation. And, and I didn't know how to call it anything else back then except for success, which she was right. I wasn't successful back then. But, um, but the, what I would tell my 21-year-old self is listen to that. Just because you didn't quite get the words right, there is a wisdom in there that when you listen to that which is emanating from within you, it's trying to tell you something. Now, the divining rod ultimately came around and took me there, but it took me 20-some years later to get back on that track. Yeah, indeed. Good words of wisdom to have had at the time, maybe. Mm-hmm, exactly. And of course, everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? So the, the other kind of part of your evaluation that you take us on through your book is that it's kind of everything is a learn. Everything is a lesson if you choose to have that thought process around it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Everything is a lesson. There's so much to learn and enjoy and appreciate in this wonderful thing called life. So what's next for you, Elise? What are you working on? Yeah, uh, gosh, what am I not working on? So I've got my, my next uh, women's anthology book is coming out, is being published next month where I found 25 women from across the world to tell their stories. It's coming out in a book called Passionately Striving and Why. So that's one thing. I'm also working on the men's anthology as well, looking for stories of men who are working from purpose from around the world. Would love to hear from someone if they are. And then the other thing that I'm working on that's really got my attention um, you know, when we were going through the pandemic, I was trying to figure out how can I help? What can I do? Right. I, how can I help more people, especially get out of any kind of a mental or well-being demise or malaise? And I discovered that I could actually take the first part of my book, um, which is which is really about how to develop passion and purpose within yourself and create that as a well-being subscription learning model for employees inside companies. So they get literally a, a well-being drip of content, of, of, of exercises and listening to something on, for a podcast every week. So what I'm doing now is bringing that into companies as, as a subscription model. So that's what it's really got my, my gaze and my focus right now. Excellent stuff. Good luck with that, both uh, projects or good luck with all three projects. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I told you I'm having more fun than I'm supposed to have. So don't tell anybody. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's too late now. It's all out there. The words, the cat's out of the bag. Is it okay? Exactly. Yeah. So if folk wanted to find out a little bit more about your work, where's the best place for us to send them? Easy to go to my website, elisecortez.com. That's the easiest place to go. And there's a bunch of resources on there. There's links to your other social media that you're active on as well. And, of course, you can get hold of a copy of Purpose Ignited, can't they? Absolutely. And please do. So I always love chatting to you. There's never a time where we've spoken where I haven't felt juiced up as a result of it. And that's no exception today. So I just want to say thank you for unlocking purpose in our listeners. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's been a delight. Love chatting to you. Likewise. Thanks, Elise. Likewise. Thank you. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media 
And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.